This is episode 4, Mataji. In the last episode, we talked about how religion, specifically Hinduism, affects women in India and whether it perpetuates oppression or liberates them from it. In this episode, I will interview Dr. Antoinette DiNapoli, a professor of religion at Texas Christian University, about her experience visiting a woman who goes by the name Mataji. Mataji is a female Hindu Shankaracharya, or guru, living in India. Using her influence as a guru, Mataji is transforming women's place in Hinduism. Okay, so can you briefly describe Mataji and the work she is doing specifically for women and other oppressed people? Absolutely. So Mataji is a title that means Holy Mother. And the people who are part of Mataji's community or constituency address her as Mataji, revered Holy Mother. But her name is Trikal Bhavanta Saraswati. And that is the name that she received after having become initiated into a tradition of renunciation, which means that Mataji has completely relinquished the social norms that often shape uh, people's choices in lives. So that would mean, in Mataji's case, she left behind her family, she left behind having a job, and she left behind all of the ties that would place her in the world as a householder in order to devote herself to worshiping God. And so for Mataji, because she comes from a social work background and spent many years working at an NGO for women and children's development in Banaras, which is a city in North India, she had this, she, she has always felt compelled to help people. So it makes sense that she would go into the social service and social work sector. But that didn't go away when she renounced. Even though she had said goodbye to her previous identity as a female householder, a mother of two children, uh, the wife of uh, a husband, she never left behind the feeling that her responsibility, or you could say her dharma, for being human and for being in this world was to help other people. So for Mataji, her way of serving God is by ending, eradicating the oppression in whatever form that takes place that contributes to um, suffering in the world that could, that contributes to discriminating against people on the basis of caste distinctions, gender distinctions, um, racial distinctions. So Mataji feels um, that so much of what passes for Hindu religion in contemporary India is not religion that it is the interpretations of male-defined interpretations of male religious teachers that have been conflated with notions of what truth is. And so her goal is to separate male-defined interpretations of truth from what she feels represents 
an original teaching on truth, which for her means equality, gender equality, social equality, caste equality. So she doesn't want to get rid of gender. She doesn't want to get rid of the idea of gender. She doesn't want to get rid of caste identity. What she is saying is, we have lots of differences in this material world. Gender, caste are just a few of them. But difference should never be translated to mean one is superior and one is inferior. And unfortunately, difference has been understood to be a reason to rationalize forms of hierarchy that have become so repressive in everyday social structures and religious life. Mm -hmm. So we can say that Mataji is reinterpreting the resources of the Hindu religious tradition in ways that foreground the primary virtues of equality, freedom, autonomy, dignity, and respect. Okay. And why is it so rare to find a female in this role in India? The original teacher, who is referred to as Adi Shankaracharya. Shankara, Adi Shankara was born in the 9th century. The dates are between 8th century and 9th century of the Common Era. Came from a Brahmin family, very devout, orthodox Brahmin family. And is said according to the religious lore surrounding Adi Shankara and even according to the biographies that have been written about him that he was so advanced as a soul that basically by the time he was born in the body that became known as Adi Shankara that was going to be his last birth and so because he was so advanced he renounced the world when he was barely six years old. Adi Shankara is said to have died when he was 32 years old, which is not too uh, far from when it said that major religious teachers like Jesus said to have died. They were young, and yet they were incredibly accomplished, if not in terms of the, their production of teachings, written teachings, at least in their understanding of how the world works and how to end the pain and suffering that qualifies life, life in the world, that qualifies any mortal existence, any mortal being. So the thing is, Adi Shankara was a male. And based on the available historical evidence, he never made provisions for the possibility that a woman could occupy the role that he was occupying. Now, there are stories, uh, different biographies written by different Hindu scholars that say Adi Shankara debated a woman by the name of Ubeya Bharati, ninth century again, and she was married. She was actually married to a man named Mandana Mishra. Mandara Mishra was an opponent of Adi Shankara. Adi Shankara is credited with being the guy who read the Vedas as much as he could of the Vedas 
and wrote a commentary on the text. But he not only wrote a commentary, he also developed a philosophical tradition or darshana known as Advaita Vedanta. So he was able to, he was incredibly learned, incredibly learned and literate. You didn't find many literate people in ninth century South Asia, much less literate women at that time. But becoming a monk was a way to get an education. And because the ninth century uh, common era in India was a time in which education was seen to be a male prerogative, many women did not, were not educated because they were not allowed the opportunity to renounce the world. Adi Shankara was, he was born in this cultural world and maybe he recognized the limitations of this way of thinking, but he didn't change it and he didn't question it. He did question caste distinctions, but sometimes the changes that we see in terms of the caste distinctions and his questioning of, of it is more symbolic okay. than real. However, let me tell you about Ubayabharati. She was married to Shankara's opponent. And the thing is, before Shankara became Adi Shankaracharya, he walked, according to the stories, he walked on foot all over India debating Buddhists, debating Jains, debating Hindus who did not look favorably on this notion of non-duality, which is Advaita Vedanta. It's the theory of non-dual existence, that we, we perceive dualism, but that's a false perception, that maya, that keeps us from seeing that there is only one reality, that is Brahman. So Adi Shankara went all around India debating people who opposed his theology, and he wanted to win. He did win, that's why he became the first Shankaracharya. Anybody who can debate and be victorious. So he goes around India holding these uh, digvijayas, which are debating competitions, and he meets Mandana Mishra. And at first, his wife, Ubheya Bharati, serves as the umpire. And Shankara debates her husband, and he wins. But Ubheya Bharati, she is so smart, and she's a scholar. Uh, she's, she's unhappy with Shankara's win, because she says that it's, it's really, it's a partial understanding. And that in order for Shankara to be victorious in this debate, he has to debate her on a tradition of learning shastras that have to do with non-celibate living. So she was asking him to debate on the Kama Shastras, which is teachings about erotic love. And she says, if you can debate me on the shastras of erotic love, then we can declare you the winner. But until then, you are no winner, and I will not award you the, the garland. And Shankara said, well, I'm at a loss here because I renounced the world when I was six years old, so I really don't know anything of the erotic arts. As part of my vow to live as a celibate, I've never engaged in the erotic arts. And Ubeya Bharati said something very important. She says, well, you cannot call yourself a Jagadguru, a guru of the world, which means the guru who knows everything there is to know, right? That's what a Shankaracharya technically implies. You are so advanced in your learning that there isn't anything that you don't know. And yet here he was admitting, I don't know anything about sex. And Ubeya Bharati said, sorry, 
then you can't be the Shankaracharya. Shankara, but Shankara said, give me 72 hours, or however long it was, and I will find a way to learn about this. So you know what he did? He was very accomplished. He was able to enter the body through meditation of a, a king who had died. But he entered the body of this, of this king, and the king came back to life, but it wasn't the king, it was Shankara. And then he learned through his identity as the king about the erotic arts. Then withdrew his soul from the king's body. Oh, the king died again and came back and debated Ubhaya Bharati, and then she was satisfied and crowned him the winner of the debate. He, there's one story in the Shankaracharya biographies that says he was so impressed with Ubhaya Bharati that he had her and her husband rule one of the four centers where he established Advaita Vedanta. And so they ruled together, Mandana Mishra and Ubayabhadati as Koshankaracharyas. Today, in contemporary India, when I asked religious leaders, male religious leaders within the Shankaracharya tradition, if there was a female Shankaracharya, there was one teacher who said, yes, there was a female Shankaracharya. And his students said, no, 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 no. There was never a female Shankaracharya because if we can establish the precedent of there being a female Shankaracharya, then that would give Mataji a place to say, look, what I'm doing is there's a precedent for. Mm -hmm. And this has been submerged in how we remember the tradition. But that student was so adamant that it had never been a female Shankaracharya. And it's kind of like the question of, was there a female pope? It's debatable. You know, mm -hmm. what about Pope Joan? <laughs> we have historical records to say she existed. It's not that these women didn't exist, but that it seems that the agents of history are, are very keen on denying them a place mm -hmm. and a voice. And why is it so hard for a woman to occupy the title and the role of the Shankaracharyas? Because first of all, um, it would really disrupt and unsettle how religious leaders, how Hindus and non-Hindus think about the relationship between gender and power. Mm -hmm. And power has typically been gendered male, particularly if not exclusively at the highest levels of traditional religious power structures. Another has to do with economics. Shankaracharyas, because they lead these monasteries, which in many think of them as, you know, erstwhile banks. They have a lot of wealth. Liquid and non-liquid. And that means if we allow for the possibility of a female Shankaracharya, then that would bring her within an institution where economic resources have always been controlled by men. And if you have a female Shankaracharya, that could mean the siphoning of funds to a religious institution run by a woman, and it would decrease the funding for, and really, if, if you don't have the funding, then you can't do the kinds of things that you want to do. But there's also this idea, cultural idea, popular idea, 
that, you know, give women money and they'll blow it. So there are a lot of cultural and religious narratives that work against women ascending to the highest positions within institutionalized religion. And I think institutionalized religion is a key word here because there are women gurus who do not operate within this orbit of institutionalized religion that are incredibly powerful and incredibly rich. Look up Mata Amritananda Maima or Amachi, a female guru from one of the lowest castes in the Hindu uh, class system. She comes from a fisher, um, fisherman community in Kerala who had no education, could hardly read and write and has able to become this very well-known transnational global globe-trotting female guru who runs orphanages and and has colleges in her name and has hospitals all over the world and has millions of millions of disciples how does that happen well she certainly didn't insert herself in into into an institutional tradition that has been reserved for men and so she's able to do all these kinds of things so why is it that you have a woman when she could be doing all the kinds of things that she wants to do, and yet why does she need to be recognized with the title that has been reserved for men? And based on my conversations with Mataji, which have been extended over the last five and a half years, and we still talk regularly. I mean, I, I call her every month on Skype, um, and I will see her again in the summer. Um, why is it that she needs to be a Shankaracharya? And she will say, because until people in this country can see women in the highest positions that men serve, then women are going to continue to be perceived as inferior. Because there is something about seeing women in positions typically monopolized by men that communicates the message that women can do this too. I think if, you know, we think of contemporary examples, if we didn't have women or transgendered identities in the military forces, and yet we said, had this idea that men and women are equal, I don't think it would, that knowledge would be visceral and embodied at a level where people would really believe that. Mm-hmm. Because if women and men are equal, then why are we not allowing women to serve in the armed forces? If women and men are equal, why are we expecting women to perform roles that are associated with domesticity and and householding and and raising of children? So there has to be, at the level of phenomenal reality, um, structures that mimic the very ideologies or theologies that people want to teach when it comes to equality. And, you know, for many people, they believe it when they see it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these religious positions, they're symbolic as well, aren't they? Because these are positions that are said to be, like, illustrative of the divine on earth. You have the, the notion of the king in feudal societies, pre-modern societies of, of being in many ways the, 
the human representative of God, you know, this idea of God as savior and divine king. What would it do to our consciousness? What would it do to our conceptual understanding of, of what would it do to our experiences if we had concepts like, you know, woman as savior and divine queen? What would that look like? And so Mataji says, look, if you really want to have equality in religion, that we need to have women provided with equal access to opportunities at the very highest levels of power. Mm-hmm. Okay, so kind of going along with a little bit about what you said, do you think that her choice to take on this role is very controversial and has her authority been questioned? It's very controversial, absolutely controversial, because um, if you go by the available historical evidence which mutes women's participation, presence, and agency in the Shankaracharya tradition, then technically there is no precedent. So it's incredibly controversial. But here, here's where things get somewhat messy. Because to argue that this is a choice on Mataji's part is to really bring a particular understanding of agency to an analysis of her religious leadership. And Western models tend to run on or operate according to agency as being equivalent to choice and even subversion of dominant structures, usually patriarchal structures and so on and so forth. But Indian traditions, um, and this is not unique to Indian traditions, but Indian religious traditions suggest um, that choice may not be the operative uh, word here that what if you know a person doesn't feel that she's making a choice but feels compelled to take a position because she is being pushed in that direction by divine forces who relate to her through means that are, are not empirical so in Mataji's case and this is something this is an argument I make that in my book that I'm writing about Mataji, the book is titled, Can a Woman Be a Shankaracharya? Religious Authority and Gender Equality in Contemporary Hinduism. So in Mataji's case, we're talking about a woman who is an outlier to the Shankaracharya tradition in the most radical sense because she's only eighth grade past, not very literate, uh, can barely write her name, does not read Sanskrit, and yet claims to know all of the Vedas. How does that happen? She's claiming to be literate in a tradition she's never read. So for Mataji, she receives visions, still, on an ongoing basis. I mean, this is a living tradition in the making. That's what makes Mataji's movement so spectacular in many ways, right? Because it's unfolding. Mm-hmm. And I'm so jealous that it's unfolding in India, and I'm here, which I'm happy to be here. But it's like, I want to be there. Um, but with Mataji, you, you, she's receiving visions from deities, one of them being Gayatri, whom she calls the mother of the Vedas, who's teaching her what the Vedas are about. So she's getting all of this religious knowledge, which is how it works on the ground, is to reinterpret and challenge the dominant male-defined interpretations of Vedic teachings, Vedic literature. And... 
for her, that has become her authority. So her religious authority and religious leadership are based on forms of authority that are instrumental in every sense rather than direct and voluntaristic. Mm-hmm. So, and I think in order to understand this kind of agency on the ground, both in terms of how it works, how it's negotiated, but what makes it so controversial is that it's based on a form of authority that is not recognized by the mainstream traditional um, lineages within the Shankaracharya institution. So, and yet she's drawing on forms of authority that are recognized within the Hindu tradition, visions, dreams, um, auditory experiences, all of this sort of numinous, that would, all of those experiences that would qualify as numinous, that which can't be seen, but it's very much um, experienced. This is her authority, and it's what allows her to claim the status as the Shankaracharya. Thank you. That's all I have. And something I want to read to you and this answers your question, I hope, or maybe um, complexifies your question on the nature and role of religion to oppress women or liberate them. Do religions, you know, liberate women? Yes. Do they oppress women? Yes. Why do they do both? I think one of the ways to wrap our heads around that question is to understand that it's not religions that are doing anything but the agents of religion which are human beings so you that and i think if we if we see human beings as participants in constructing religious worlds and that these religious worlds can be take on a life of their own and an agency on their own and that we you know give the label religion to those then it will help us to understand why you can have so much difference and variation within a single religious tradition because you have so many people, you have people who are situated within all kinds of positions who are bringing to their understanding of religion interpretations that are very much intertwined with who they are as a man or a woman or a transgendered person, um, what their educational status is, what their social status is, what their class and caste status is. All of these play a role, not only in how we experience and perceive the world, but also in the kinds of knowledge that we're able to to form. And therefore, it's, it's not all that surprising that you can have very privileged male human beings who can come up with what feels like very oppressive and repressive and um, anti-modern interpretations of religion and yet you can have people that would perhaps be classified as subaltern, representative of the subaltern communities, but I'd rather use the word marginalized identities and communities, who can bring a completely different and opposing, sometimes complementary, but opposing interpretation of what religion is about. And yet, marginalized identities have rarely had a platform that would give them a sense of authority to be heard and to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. But So there is a statement in a book 
called The Madness of the Saints. It's written by a good friend and mentor of mine, June McDaniel. And uh, this sentence has never left me. And I want to read it to you because I feel that it expresses what I just said in terms of religions as things made up of people who are agents who have so much power. Um, so religion has been both the way in and the way out for women. It has been the way into a ritual tradition that supports subservience, lowered status, and a limited sphere of activity. But it has also been the way out. For religious knowledge and practice have given women freedom and a wide range of action. So it can be both. Even for the same person at different moments in their lives. Mataji, before she was compelled to claim the Shankaracharya title with a plum. She was a Hindu housewife and was doing everything that she was expected to do. In many ways, she was living the Dharma Shastric ideal of the perfect mother and wife. She was that, you know, she was following her Sri Dharma as best as she could. And yet, her husband committed serial infidelity, couldn't bring home any money because he was an alcoholic, couldn't hold down a job, couldn't take care of the family. You know, so it doesn't take much to observe the ideals that are placed on human beings, religious human beings, and how there is such a gap between the ideal and lived reality, but not only that, how women tend to get the short end of the stick. And Mataji is a woman that said, I'm tired of getting the short end of the stick, and I think I know why women have been getting the short end of the stick. And it needs to stop. As we can see from my discussion with Dr. DiNapoli, it is not religion itself that is perpetuating the oppression of women in India, but rather the people that hold leadership positions in Hinduism, who are predominantly male, the reason that women do not occupy these leadership positions is that there is not an accepted precedent for it. However, people like Mataji are setting the precedent. And so if she and other women are successful, hopefully one day religion in India truly can liberate women. Thank you for listening.